Go ahead and find Mark chapter 4 with me. Mark chapter 4. Much more, that's Mark chapter 4. It's really good to see you this morning. I'm glad so many of you are here, in particular visitors, whatever the reason uh, you're here. We, uh, we're happy for it. Any questions? Any uh, observations? I'll be happy to field them, um, but it's just good to see you. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. Mark 4:35. On that day when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him, uh, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? So exhausted from a day's teaching, Jesus walks onto a boat that's going to take him and and the rest of the disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, Jesus promptly falls asleep. Surely uh, the disciples, at least four of whom were fishermen, surely they can take care of whatever uh, uh, nautical challenges might, might arise on the way. But a storm swoops in over them that's so intense they think they're going to die. And so they shake Jesus awake with a rebuke in verse 38, which it, all, it always seems to me a bold move to rebuke Jesus. It happens a few times in the Gospels. But they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus responds with two rebukes of his own. His first rebuke in verse 39 is against the wind and the sea when he tells them, Peace, be still. You know, all, all the people in the world could shout at the same time and not accomplish what Jesus does with these three short words. Sort of like a naughty child who straightens up when he hears Dad raise his voice, the wind and the water pipe down when they hear Jesus raise his. That's rebuke number one, the wind and the waves. And then after rebuking the wind, Jesus rebukes the disciples in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In the sudden calm, the, the disciples panic. Their hysteria seems ridiculous now. Everything is okay. They thought they were dying. Little did they understand they were only three Jesus-spoken words away from being safe. Their fear, it turns out, was way out of place. They should right now be mulling over what the answer to these questions really are. Why am I so afraid? What is the state of my faith? Just how little did I understand and trust this Jesus guy? What I want us to do this morning is to do the same mulling over of these questions that the disciples should be doing. To answer the question, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus connects the presence of fear with the lack of faith. These two questions are next to each other. There's a lot of fear and there's not a lot of faith. As long as we are petrified of storms, we cannot be very focused on the God who the storms obey, can we? Or else we wouldn't be so afraid of the storms. And as long as we are full of faith in the God who commands storms, we will not be all that paralyzed over fear over storms. Do you see how that works? I really don't think much has changed since Jesus asked this question, why are you so afraid? 
There are still storms we fear. And the fact that we do fear them says something about our faith in God. We are afraid of lots of things. We're afraid of the state of the world. As Jesus says, we're afraid of wars and rumors of wars. We let the news channel stoke our fear about everything going wrong in the world. We're afraid about the economy and finances, uh, the market, inflation, layoffs, retirement, and all the rest. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid about the kind of world our kids and grandkids will have to navigate. We're afraid about health. We're afraid about aging. We're afraid about our loved ones. We're afraid of natural disasters. We could go on and on. Surely I've hit on something you've been afraid of. I, I, I certainly have been afraid of some of this. While there may be a place of godly concern in all of this, I think if we're honest, our emotions often go far beyond that, a constructive godly concern. I know people, I have been one, who are consumed with fear, who let the news dictate how the rest of their day goes and how they treat everyone else, who let what they worry about rob them of sleep, and it ruins their lives. Fear is a serious issue, Jesus says. It is a major impediment to faith. So the question is, why are we so afraid? What does it say about us that we are so afraid, and how can we replace our fear with faith? So here's a roadmap. Here are the three places we're going to go in our sermon today. Number one, I want to talk about fear's assumptions about God. Number two, I want to talk about faith's assumptions about God. And number three, I want to talk about how we should move, how we can move from fear to faith. So to begin with, let's talk about fear's assumptions about God. Our fear says something about what we believe about God. Again, Jesus connects fear and faith. Actually, more precisely, he disconnects fear and faith. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? As long as we are consumed with fear about the world, we are not all that consumed with faith in the God who made the world and who's sovereign over the world. That's what Jesus is getting at. So what exactly is it we are saying about God when we wring our hands in fear? What are we thinking about him whenever we're consumed with fear? Well, number one... Fear assumes that God does not care. Fear perhaps assumes that God does not care. So we have our collection of fears we we, uh, carry around with us. We nurse and we think about and we keep fresh and we commiserate with other people about. We've got our collection of, of, of fears. And meanwhile, it seems to us, God doesn't seem all that affected by what we're affected by. God doesn't seem all that worried about. Maybe he's disinterested. Maybe Elijah's taunts about Baal are actually true about God. He's asleep. He's stepped away. He's not all that concerned. He's got bigger and better things going on than what I'm afraid of. I think this is akin to the disciples rebuking Jesus. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's the spirit of Gideon who asks an angel in, in, uh, in the travails of his day. He, he, t- he told an angel, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? If all this bad stuff is happening and we're so consumed with, uh, with fear about it, how is it that God could possibly be with us? So if bad stuff happens to us and God doesn't care enough to stop it, we assume we're probably just on our own. Fear assumes that God can't or won't help me. Fear often assumes God can't or won't help me. That we just can't rely on God to fix this problem. Yes, God was present to help people during Bible times, but we don't live in Bible times. This is a different time. They were different people Nowadays, we're on our own. It used to happen people would call on God and he could swoop in to help. That's just not the way it works anymore. Nowadays, the universe seems to operate on the principle that God helps those who help themselves. So why bother God with it? 
the reality of present danger and heartache just seems far more real than all that stuff in the Bible about God helping people. We just can't count on God to actually help us. This is the sort of thought process we are, we are imbibing when we're consumed with fear. Number three, fear assumes that God cannot be at work in a storm like he is in the calm. If these awful things happen, it must mean God is gone. Because after all, why didn't he stop it? Just as the clouds block the sun, so God is somehow blocked from helping or blessing or strengthening because a storm happened. Fear consistently views life's troubles as a statement of God's failure. And I think when we're afraid, we're we're incapable of considering any further purpose than ending trouble and and restoring our comfort. That's all we can imagine God should be up to right now. Fear views God as sort of a strange combination of part genie and part insurance policy. God is there to take things away that we don't like upon our command. That's the genie part. Or he's there to look to when everything falls apart. That's the insurance part. But what we don't think he is, is a sovereign king who's actually in charge, nor a caring father who actually wants to help. These are the sorts of things going on between our ears when fear consumes us. Let's get the other side of the coin, though. What is it that we assume about God when we're full of faith? Jesus' lesson to the fearful disciples in the boat is exactly the lesson fearful disciples today need. Because like them, we are afraid of things. And like them, we begin to question and doubt God because we're afraid. And like them, we need to be taught that letting go of fear means remembering things about God and remembering things about his relationship to storms. Like this, God is with me in the storm. Here is what faith thinks. God is with me in the storm. You know, it's remarkable how we take comfort just from the presence of others, especially in trouble. Just the presence of other people changes everything about it. We want to have other people near us when we hear bad news, even though there's nothing those other people can do to reverse the situation or make it all go away. But there's just something special about the presence of others that makes the hardship more bearable. We understand far worse than just facing difficulty is facing difficulty alone. The alone part makes it unbearable. Which is why Jesus repeatedly reminds his disciples that he is and will always be with them. As he sends them out to preach in the Great Commission, he tells them, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he is. Jesus Jesus appears to Paul in Corinth, and he tells him this in Acts 18 and verse 10, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. Nothing about Paul's situation changes. All the people who hate him and wish him dead still hate him and wish him dead. The only thing Jesus says to Paul is, you're not alone when all those people hate you and wish you dead. When people abandon Paul in his defense before Caesar, he insists, 2 Timothy 4.17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. In intense persecution with his life on the line, Paul declares Jesus is with him, and he was. This is different from saying Jesus always stops hardships from happening. That's a promise that doesn't appear in the Bible. That God, uh, serving God, being one of Jesus' people means nothing bad will ever happen to you. That's never a promise that's made. What God does repeatedly promise is things like this. In Hebrews 13 and verse 5. He encourages us to keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you had. How is it we can do that? Be so content and restful and, and not full of fear and anxiety. For, he says, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's something Jesus said. 
So we, in response to what Jesus said, can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? The promise is, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you in all circumstances, and our response to that is, if that's true, I will not fear, and I will ask bold questions like, what can man do to me? If you think about it, it's quite a frightening question. What can man do to me? Because man can do a lot to us. Man can bankrupt us. Man can humiliate us. Man can take away people we love. Man can kill us. But no man can separate us from our God, and no man can take away our hope. Jesus is always with us, even in the storm. This is what faith always remembers. Here's what else faith faith remembers. Number two, God cares for me. God cares for me in the storm. When the disciples wake Jesus, they chide him. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's an absurd question. They accuse Jesus of of apathy. Do you even care? Or maybe cruelty. Maybe you just don't care. You, you, the opposite of care. You, you're sort of cruel. You're, You're indifferent toward us. You don't care about us. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. But this is the way we often respond in fear. As our panic level rises, we just cry out, Where are you? What are you doing, Lord? Why aren't you stopping this? Don't you care? But you know, the most lasting images of Jesus are his deep compassion for people suffering, or in stories where he displays that. And so he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus in Luke 11 as he sees people grieving, or in John 11, rather. He has compassion on the widow who loses her only son. He's deeply touched by her plight in Luke 7. He weeps over Jerusalem for the trouble that's coming on it in Luke chapter 19. Now, in some of those stories, he intervenes to to end the difficulty. Other times he does not. But in every case, he cares. In every case, he cares. Jesus also reminds us of God's care as an answer to anxiety. He says, not even a sparrow who falls to the ground escapes God's notice. He reminds us how God feeds the birds and clothes the grass. And if God cares for these small things, how can he not care for us? Peter urges us, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. Again, God's care does not mean we'll never have cares and anxieties. But God's care should help relieve our cares and anxieties. We are not alone in them. And in fact... It's often in the storm where it's revealed the true depth of God's care for us. That what we often take for granted in times of calm, we appreciate anew in times of trouble. When we see God's hand giving us emotional strength that we didn't know we were lacking in the first place, and all of a sudden sudden we find ourselves in need of it. When we find ways to make ends meet that cannot be a coincidence, we come to an understanding of God's providence. When we see God's prayers answered, when our prayers to God answered, often in ways far afield of what we intended or expected, that just as Jesus' storm proves his power, just as as the storm sort of proves Jesus' power to the disciples when he calms it, sometimes our storms can can affirm God's care for us more deeply when we see him working in them. And number three, faith understands that God brings good out of storms. God can bring good out of storms. An interesting thing happens after Jesus calms the storm. This is verse 41. Verse 41, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? The disciples move from a sheer terror to a reflective awe 
and fear. They, they really transfer their fear. They don't, it doesn't just dissipate. They transfer their fear from the storm to the one who calmed the storm. And what before seemed a terrible tragedy now stands as a memorable lesson in faith. Could it be God was at work in the storm the entire time? Is it possible all along God intended to use this storm to lead them to ask these questions? We think God's presence, God's care should always mean no storms. But the Bible teaches us God works in storms and God brings good from storms. Take the story of Joseph. His brothers full of hatred and jealousy sell him into slavery in Egypt. Many years and twists and turns later, they find themselves before his feet begging for grain, fearing he will avenge their, their, uh, their, their, uh, their cruelty to him. Joseph had suffered tremendously through their evil. He lived in a foreign land apart from his father. He had wrestled with bitterness. But he comes to this conclusion in Genesis 50 and verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph had been through a storm. You meant evil against me. I've been through a lot of evil. And yet he declares God has turned that storm into good, into blessing, into salvation. God brings good out of storms. The last several chapters of Acts detail the nightmarish imprisonment and shipwreck and travels of Paul. He was falsely accused, wrongfully arrested, held without charge, narrowly escaped an assassination plot at one, temp, at, at one point. He's handcuffed by corrupt officials and stubborn centurions. Uh, in the process, a snake bites him for all his trouble somewhere along the way. Years Paul could have spent free to preach the gospel, to go around and travel unimpeded. He is in prison. He's wrapped up in the Roman bureaucracy. And yet he declares this in his imprisonment in Philippians 1 and verse 12. I want you to know that what has happened has really served to advance the gospel. He says God turned all this to the good. The gospel reached new people it never would have otherwise. Other disciples are emboldened by my imprisonment and my faith in it. Paul may have still had questions about why God did it this way, but he remains thrilled that God has turned this storm into good. We could go on. God makes good in the Bible out of Abraham's wandering, out of Samson's weakness, out of Job's loss, out of Israel's captivity, out of the widowing of Naomi. And of course, the greatest good of all, the salvation of humanity, is made possible through the greatest evil of all, the crucifixion of the Son of God. God works in storms. So we fear storms because storms are unpleasant. And yet God assures us that there is nothing he cannot handle, nothing we cannot handle without his help. And there's nothing he cannot work through to create something good. What he urges us to do is to trust him in the storm, to be confident he can bring good out of it if we will remain faithful to him. And so finally, in number three, let's talk about how we can move from fear, from fear to faith. Number one, I would encourage us to scrutinize our fear. Jesus asked them, why are you so afraid? It's an invitation to scrutinize. Why is it that you are afraid? What's happening between your ears that is leading you to this, to this state of mind? Scrutinize it. What am I afraid of? Why am I afraid of that thing? What about God? What about my life? What about myself are baked into this fear? What are all the things happening inside of me? So I'll, I'll, give, you, uh, I'll give you an example. I'll give you a, a personal example of, uh, 
running down the sort of roots, the roots of, a, roots of a fear. So for example, here's one thing I'm afraid of. Maybe you're afraid of this too. I am afraid that I am not in control of my life. I'm afraid of not being in control of my life. I'm afraid that the God who is in control might be a little too wild for my tastes. I'm afraid God might, God might have a vision for my life I'm not entirely comfortable with. I'm afraid I might be called to suffer beyond a mild discomfort here or there. I'm afraid the path toward maturity for myself might require more pain and awfulness than I want. I'm afraid me and God don't have the same priorities when it comes to my comfort. See, my love for comfort and control makes trusting God challenging. Scrutinize your fear like that. Put it under a microscope and say, what is it that's happening inside of me that's making me so afraid? Scrutinize your fear. Why are you so afraid? Number two, pray for help and healing. This is Philippians 4 and verse 6, if you want to turn with me. Philippians 4 and verse 6. In Philippians 4 and verse 6, Paul gives some very specific advice for those who are afraid. Philippians 4 and verse 6. Philippians 4 and verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul prescribes prayer as an anxiety replacement. He says, channel your anxiety into prayer. Express to God exactly what it is you're worried about. Say out loud to God what you're afraid of and make requests to him for help. With thanksgiving along the way, with mindfulness of all that is still good in your life amidst the fear. So what is it that you need? And how is it that God can help? Christians don't just stew over their worries and fears. They don't act like it's all up to them. They don't bottle it all up. Paul says what they do is they always pour them out before God and seek his help. Pray for help and pray for healing. Number three, evaluate past storms. What happened in the past when we faced difficulty? What did God do then? What have we learned through that? What mistakes do we tend to make when things are hard? How can we trust God more? I think it's especially important to observe how God was with us, how God showed his care through and after the difficulty all along, to evaluate past storms. Number four, we need to try to bias the ultimate and not just the immediate. Bias toward the ultimate, not just the immediate. When Jesus warns his disciples about persecution, this is how he cautions them. This is Matthew 10, 26. He says, have no fear of them, the persecutors, And then he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What he's hitting on is we tend to bias the immediate. We see the thing in front of our face that's big and scary. We fear the persecutor because the persecutor can kill the body. That's an immediate worst case scenario. But what Jesus tells the disciples to do is to learn to bias toward the ultimate, not just the immediate. Here's what you do to bias the ultimate. You fear the one who all will stand before in judgment, including the persecutor. You fear the one who has has the authority to destroy both soul and body in hell. And not just these little peons who think they're in charge of the world, who will learn the hard way sooner or later how wrong they were. When we bias the ultimate, 
our fears here and now are put into perspective. And finally, simply, choose faith. Fear whispers in our ear that we're all alone. There's no one we can rely on to take care of us except for us. God isn't there or God's far away or God doesn't care. Jesus teaches us this is the way that Gentiles, people without God, think. Who think it's all up to them to to see after themselves what we shall eat and drink and wear. This is how the Gentiles think. We believe in a God who loves us and always wants our good. Even when bad things happen, we believe God is there to care for us and provide and redeem the difficulty. Faith ultimately amounts to a choice we make. To choose to believe in His purposes and His will for us even if it means pain and discomfort in the short term. But to remember the alternative is, is, not a, is not a happy life, free of any worry. The alternative to trusting God in the difficulty is to believe fierce hysteria and to wallow in our anxieties, which doesn't sound a whole lot better. And so as Paul encouraged Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Jesus insists that his disciples approach life without fear, Because they believe in a God who is bigger than anything else we are tempted to fear. Jesus says faith is bigger than fear. And as long as that's true for you, you can handle anything, anything in your way. And so perhaps there's someone here this morning whose fear has consumed them, has gobbled up everything else in your life, including your faith in God. If there's anyone that needs to repent of of, uh, fearful faithlessness, if there's anyone that needs to seek help in the prayers of God's people, If there's anyone that needs to come to submit themselves to the all-powerful God, the one whom we are to fear, if there's anyone that needs to respond, come forward now as we stand and sing. Oh, God.